Hi, this is Taylor Quimby, senior producer. You have one new message and no saved messages. Yeah, good morning. This is Laura Slitt from Bartlett, New Hampshire, calling again, just leaving a general message on my way home from <clears throat> from my little vegan cafe in Chikorua. There are only three vegans that I've come to know well in my lifetime. First was my vegan bandmate, Chet, who I met working at a burrito joint. Second was Chet's vegan girlfriend, Christine. She smoked American spirits. And third is this woman, Laura Slitt. I heard... Virginia Prescott interview Elaine Kostrova regarding the virtues of butter. <laughs> oh my God. Laura is both impossible to avoid and easy to ignore. She's been emailing me since I first started producing radio more than eight years ago. Okay, so the other side of the virtues of butter is that it comes from the milk of pregnant lactating cows who are restrained, artificially inseminated. Some emails are long threads. Some are just one short sentence, stabbed out in all caps. As I wrote this opening, a message from Laura actually popped up in my inbox. The reality of nursing on bovine lacteal secretions, it said. Attached was a JPEG titled Fetal Calves. It is not a cute picture. In thanks for their service for, for providing the dairy industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industrial complex all the products. As you can hear, her voicemails, also somewhat regular, can go on for minutes. She'll get upset enough to swear on occasion. And even after all these years, the graphic descriptions can still catch me off guard. Their infant calves are sliced open out of their bodies and fall onto the slaughterhouse floor in a pool of their own mother's blood. Perhaps Mr. Quimby and Virginia Prescott could go to the local slaughterhouse where the spent, so-called spent dairy cows are taken. Mr. Quimby is me, by the way. Now, I said Laura is easy to ignore. And that's because for her, literally every issue can be traced back to the consumption of meat or dairy. Our broken health care system, eating too much meat. Pollution, agricultural runoff. Mass shootings, it's because eating meat has desensitized us to violence. No matter what kind of reporting I'm doing, if it isn't about the animals, it's not good enough for Laura. Once again, living the lie. And that's what we're hearing from mainstream media. Thank you. End of recording. To play, press 1. To save, press 2. To discard, press 3. For additional, discarded. So yeah, I have spent eight years deleting her emails without reading them. Discarded. Deleting her voicemails without listening. Discarded. And yet, there have been moments in my life... What you know you can't explain. ...where I've sensed some invisible structure guiding my actions. But you feel it. Like a vast tapestry hanging just out of sight... It is this feeling that has brought you to me. This is the story of how I decided to take the red pill, to follow Laura Slit down the rabbit hole, and find out just how deep it really goes. Do you want to know what it is? This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. This week on the show, a deeply personal story. It's one that might make you feel a little defensive, might occasionally have you shouting at us while you listen. Certainly, that was the case for me. But it is Taylor's story, his saga. And we're just along for the ride. 
And heads up, there is one swear in this episode, as well as some descriptions of people killing animals to eat them. On June 1st, 2017, I got an email from Laura. It was the same day that President Trump pulled out of the Paris Accords. We have breaking news uh, from two officials. The United States will withdraw. If true, this would be a colossal mistake by President Trump. It was more or less a typical rant, six paragraphs about mass extinction, about how it's almost too late to save the planet. Each sentence, something you might plaster on a protest sign, all caps and exclamation points, lots of blame. But for the first time ever, I hit reply. I tried to be vulnerable, to speak my truth, that I found environmental news overwhelming, that as both a human and a journalist, these are scary times, that I struggle to know how best to talk about climate change with my son. I told Laura that I ate meat, but that I was trying to cut back. I knew that Laura lived not far from my mom, so I invited her to coffee. Hi, it's Laura Slit. Um, I got your message. And next week looks pretty good, so I'll, I'll be in touch with you over the next couple days. Thanks. To be honest, this wasn't the first time I questioned the ethics of eating meat. I've read that the average American omnivore eats 202 separate animals every year. That means by the time I was in my early 20s, I had eaten some 4,000. Back then, my buddy Jake and I got drunk one night. We had this semi-profound realization— that despite eating thousands of animals in our lifetimes, we had never once seen one get slaughtered. It seemed unjust somehow, or cowardly. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it was, by eating meat, I was participating in the death of animals on a regular basis. This is Jake. Sam and I Skyped him in from his apartment in Seattle. And I felt like if I were going to truly live in that world where that was okay with me, then I needed to understand what really participating in the death of animals felt like. And you figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember Jake and I's original drunken conversation. It felt important somehow. But I never acted on it like Jake did. Jake found a way to really participate in the process by arranging to slaughter a goose. Before anything else, I needed to separate the goose from the rest of the animals because if you are slaughtering a goose, apparently you want it to have an empty stomach. The other part of it was that I figured out that if I were going to slaughter this animal, I think that the most immediate way that I was going to do it was I was just going to use an axe. Wait, I thought um, I thought you I thought you were going to break its neck. Yeah, no, I was I was initially going to do that, but then I don't know if you've ever seen just how thick a goose's neck is. Yeah. So I ended up going with the axe. Okay, so you separate it out. Yeah. By the time I got back to the the goose pen about 24 hours later, you could see the fear in this animal's eyes, Hmm. which I had not expected. As soon as he opened the gate, the isolated goose bolted. Jake says he tried to catch it for a full 20 minutes to no avail. He was starting to feel panicky. Eventually, he gave up trying to grab it by hand and found some rope to make a lasso. I caught the goose out on a trail, <laughs> put the broomstick down on the, on the goose's neck, um, and pinned its head down onto the ground. And, oh, wow. Um, and in one 
pretty clean swoop, I was able to to take the head off. Um, and this was a this is a fully grown, bright white snow white goose. Uh, and so what happened next was really traumatic. <laughs> it uh, the stub of its neck uh, lifted up vertically, and at the same time, it spread its wings open, and just blood started pouring out of the neck onto the back of the animal. So those snow white feathers now became bright red with its own blood. I honestly don't remember how I first reacted when Jake told me this story about the goose. But thinking back to it later, I was almost impressed, proud of him even, for bothering to take our stupid conversation so far. And as experiments go, it really did sort of settle the question. Why hadn't either of us slaughtered an animal? Because we didn't have to. It's so much easier to pick up a half pound of chicken tenders at Walmart than it is to lasso a goose and chop off its head. Monday, July 17, 2017. Hey, Taylor, it's Laura Slit. I'm off today, but I heard you were feeling under the weather. Sorry to hear that. Um, I'm off also tomorrow until 5 o'clock. After I emailed Laura to meet up, everything about her demeanor shifted. It was as if I was the first person to respond to one of her thousands of emails. And when we met for coffee for the first time, she told me, from my station, nobody ever had. We chatted for more than two hours. I deliberately took my coffee black, and I didn't bring a microphone. Laura is in her 60s, older than I had imagined. She had hip glasses frames, a collection of colorful shawls around her neck. She seemed like the cool aunt, the one you might go to as a teenager if you wanted to learn about sex. Laura told me about her pet pot-bellied pigs. She told me about how she struggled with addiction when she was young. She's Jewish, but doesn't really practice the faith. Too much hypocrisy when it comes to food, she says. Even then, I was scheming up a story about Laura. I wanted to explore the topic, but also to push back on her trollish form of advocacy. To help her understand why, given her approach, nobody in the media would ever take her seriously. But the more we talked, the less I cared about proving her wrong, and the more I wanted to know, what is it that propels a person to become so singularly focused on an issue? What had Laura experienced that I hadn't? What turned Laura into Laura? So on April 10th, 2001, I was running a small cafe. Laura was listening to NHPR. As I was prepping, and out of the sort of the corner of my ear, if you will. She heard a quick news spot, just a 20 or 30 second story. About a Washington Post article that had to do with a slaughterhouse investigation. And the title of the article was They Die Piece by Piece, which had a photo of a cow's face. Eyes bulging, you could see the eyes were bloodshot. And underneath the subtitle, he's been skinned to his head, his legs have been cut off, and he's still conscious. The author, Joby Warwick, exposed a number of slaughterhouses in that article, where humane slaughter laws were being routinely violated, where animals were being butchered before they were killed. It was only a matter of days before Laura committed to making a lifelong change. It was like a lightning strike. I felt like the only way I could empower myself not to participate was just to become vegan, and that's what I did. The article came out in April. In September, the World Trade Centers collapsed, and Joby Warwick took on a new beat for the Washington Post, covering terrorism. But he still remembers how that slaughterhouse story really touched a nerve. Emails 
to an extent that I don't think I've ever witnessed in 20 years of the Washington Post, where my inbox was flooded, flooded day after day it, in a process that's continued for weeks as the article was shared, and handwritten letters, and letters to the editor, and letters to senators and congressmen. I reached out to Joby Warwick because I wanted to know if Laura was pushed towards veganism just by reading his article, what was it like actually investigating those big slaughterhouses? Places where, as he details, a pair of workers might personally slaughter more than 2,000 cows a day for $9 an hour. Turns out, Joby initially became interested in the subject not because of animal rights, but because of worker rights. When you're inside one of these places, first of all, you get a sense of who works there. And it's generally, these aren't coveted jobs. These are jobs that go mostly to immigrants. In some cases, we've even seen local prison populations uh, being detailed or or, or offered the opportunity to to work inside some of these meat processing plants because nobody else is willing. It's it's hot. It's difficult. It's it's, uh, grueling work. Uh, There's all kinds of potential injuries, including carpal tunnel and repetitive stress injuries. It's not a place that, that's very pretty to contemplate, and yet it's part of our lives in a strange way because we all partake in the products. Saved message sent by a public caller Thursday, August 17, 2017. Hey, Taylor. It's me, Laura Bartlett. Um, I don't know. I'm just feeling a lot of stuff this morning, and I felt like I needed to talk to somebody who I know understands and somebody who's empowered to maybe do something. I'm just really frustrated that today at 5 o'clock, Governor Sununu, I'm going to try to go with my friend, is going to be speaking about tougher animal cruelty laws while at the same time, you know, people are eating them, killing them, hauling them out of the... So so I guess that's it. It's, it's, you know, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. I wake up every single morning thinking about these things. I go to sleep thinking about these things. I get in trouble talking about these things. I know you get it. I know you understand. And and, and I, I just felt like I needed to talk to you. So you take good care. Um, I guess just thanks for being you. Okay, bye-bye. By the time I spoke with Joby, Laura and I were practically friends. She'd call me at work. We'd talk for 15 or 20 minutes. She emailed almost daily. I'd coach her on how to get through to reporters. She'd send me videos of caged dogs being prepped for China's annual dog meat festival. I even visited Laura at her house once and met her pigs. It was one of the few times that I actually brought along a microphone. Olivia! All right. And there she's still the old man. He's 13. Oh. I've had him since he was like six weeks old. 13? Got plenty in him. Oh, yeah. What do you want? Well, he smells the fruit, so that means he's definitely spry enough to <laughs> come by. Hi. That's Cecil. The Hi. Hi. Come on, buddy. Come on. Come on, Whitey. Whitey. Smart. Anyway. I had always seen Laura as a quintessential vegan stereotype. Hers was a black and white, shame-based approach to changing hearts and minds, and it always left me feeling cornered. But Laura has a sweet side. She's caring, and not just towards animals. I told her, if you want to get reporters like me to listen, don't be afraid to share the good stuff too. Show them your sweet side. So in between Slaughterhouse videos, Laura started sending me a completely different set of links. Articles about lab-grown meat, veggie-based TED Talks, and websites for prominent vegan thinkers. One of them was advocate and psychologist Dr. Melanie Joy. 
so the listeners are, um, you know, probably veg curious at most, right? Most of them are not vegans. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to say. We've never done like a survey or anything. And vegan cookbook author slash podcaster, Colleen Patrick Goudreau. But I'd love to give you, Taylor, um, could I send you a copy of the 30 Day Vegan Challenge? Uh, you may. Because that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> and what the two of them told me is that the invisible structure I've been sensing all this time, that vast tapestry, it has a name, carnism. Carnism is um, the invisible ideology or belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. It's essentially the opposite of veganism. A lot of people think that eating animals is normal, the default. What Dr. Joy is arguing is that the decision to eat animals is part of a belief system, a set of unspoken values about what is and isn't okay. When eating animals is not a necessity, which is true for many people, not all people, but many people in the world today, then it's a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs. But carnism, she says, has a consistency problem because people like animals. On the other hand, we eat animals, often the same ones. Yeah, it it is. I mean, carnism is a a wildly irrational system. In some countries, we eat pigs and cows and chickens, all manners of fish, crustacean, bison, ostriches, sheep, and rabbits. In other countries, we eat ducks, goats, alligators, horses, dogs, camels, cats. And that creates something called cognitive dissonance, an uneasy awareness that our actions are not lining up with our values. So how do we cope? When you're dealing with a cognitive dissonance, you can either change your behavior to align with your values or you could change your beliefs, right? In other words, stop eating meat or do everything you can to justify it. You know, one of the things that contributes to our cognitive dissonance or to the our, our being able to kind of deal with the cognitive dissonance is the language that we use. We don't say, I'm eating animals. We say we're eating meat. Cow becomes beef. Sheep becomes mutton. Pork chop is more palatable than pig chop. And speaking of pigs, they're smarter than dogs, as many vegans will frequently point out. But a dirty room is a pigsty. A sexist man is a chauvinist pig. More language that helps us choose bacon over belly rubs. We have to, like, it necessitates us considering them less worthy of our regard um, because we want to keep eating them. A good deal of this meat-centric language goes back centuries, with animal names of Germanic origin, but words for meat being French. Except in the case of factory farms, where industry euphemisms have a very American spin. They cut off their beaks. Well, we call it debeaking, but the industry calls it beak conditioning. They call them maternity pens. And of course, these are pens where the pigs literally cannot turn around. They cannot get up. They cannot stretch. Through all these methods and more, the paradoxical system of carnism reinforces itself, they say. An endless feedback loop that says eating meat is normal, natural, and necessary. The three ends of justification. And, you know, not surprisingly, perhaps, these same arguments have been used to justify violent practices throughout human history, you know, from male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. This concept of carnism, it reminded me of the movie The Matrix. What Dr. Joy is saying is that we're all brainwashed by a sort of program, one that we can't even see at work, one designed to keep us eating meat without asking questions. And when I hear all this, part of me is like, yeah, wow, totally. But another part of me is like, wait, 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 wait. Because the whole carnism thing does feel like it's lumping a whole lot of stuff into one big bad meat pile. Factory farming, hunting, fishing, backyard chickens, roadkill— 
these do not all feel like the same thing to me. Maybe there is a system designed to convince us that eating meat is quote-unquote normal, but come on, death is normal, right? The funny thing about carnism, eh, actually it's not that funny, is that once I started reading up on it, I got stuck in that dumb loop, wondering if every defensive thought that I had was just the brainwashing talking. Anyway, that's the argument, the meat matrix. And reservations aside, the scale of this thing, for those who see it, is hard to comprehend. You know, more farmed animals are slaughtered um, in one week than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. Once you become aware of this reality, it is very difficult not to become, you know, somewhat traumatized by that. It is quite literally like having an awakening. You are no longer asleep. You no longer see, you, you see it for what it is. It kind of explains why Laura is so abrasive sometimes. She's just trying to shout as loud as she can all the time to shock us out of her collective coma. But Colleen and Dr. Joy, they have also seen The Matrix and have come to a very different conclusion. Like with the idea that people do nothing at all because they think they have to do everything is so self-defeating. So Whereas Laura's method of argumentation often wavers into territory that I am easily able to write off, this more nuanced approach left me feeling a little disarmed. So if they say something like, I, you know, I could give up meat, but I couldn't give up cheese, I say, well, why don't you give up meat and just keep eating cheese? And they go, I never thought about that before. <laughs> like, I never thought. The thing is, it's easy to argue with a vegan stereotype. Their outrage is so predictable, you can't help but want to poke holes in the argument. What about the Native Americans eating bison? What about our canine teeth? What if plants feel pain? What about honey? What if everybody went vegan? How would we all eat? I have made those arguments and more over the years. But if it's not all or nothing, if it's not black and white, what exactly have I been trying to prove? The biggest misconception about veganism for me is that people talk about it like it's an end in itself. Vegan is a means to an end. And you can calm down about thinking you have to change your whole world view about, you know, if you're ever on a desert island, like, you know, these all these scenarios that people paint, you just don't have to solve that on a day to day basis. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Sometime around then, I committed myself to looking at the world through Laura's eyes. I started by clicking on every link that she sent me. Every beakless chicken pic. Every botched slaughter video. All that shaky cell phone footage terrified animals, secretly recorded and smuggled out into the real world. These videos, they are everything you know they are. Horrible, nauseating, very hard to watch. But that's only the beginning, because for Laura, the atrocity isn't just contained inside the slaughterhouse. Like Dr. Joy said, signs of it are everywhere. It bleeds into our communities in a million invisible ways. To see the meat matrix, I'd have to open my eyes to all those benign triggers. In my house, on my street, all of those red flags that remind Laura this world is built on the bones of the animal kingdom. So I got this mug that says, make bacon, not war. The matrix is everywhere. It's got a peace symbol, but um, it's made out of bacon. It's a bacon peace symbol. It is all around us, even now in this very room. Okay, got some mail here. Oh, 
boneless chicken fingers on the front. You can see it when you look out your window. Yeah, I can smell the hot dogs. The Birkenstock store, leather. Walking by a restaurant called The Boar's Head. Or when you turn on your television. We admire waiter. Black Angus beef and bacon. You can feel it when you go to work. Deuteronomy. When you go to church. You may slaughter your animals in any of your When you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neil. And even more salami! <laughs> hey, Taylor, it's Laura Slit from Bartlett. Um, I just got back from a place called Woodstock Farm Sanctuary where they had their annual, what they call Thanksgiving. It would really be profoundly important and healing and honest and honest to discuss Thanksgiving from the perspective of the birds. These poor birds whose 46 million lives are taken for no reason at all other than we're conditioned to think it's okay because they've done nothing to deserve what we do to them. Anyway, thanks a million. Uh, I hope we can talk soon. Bye. All this effort, trying to see the meat matrix the way Laura does, it made me think back to my friend Jake, who after slaughtering that goose, had what a lot of people would think of as a pretty normal response. It really took me a few minutes of standing over this animal and really contemplating what I had done um, before I could pick it up. And I remember I grabbed it by its feet and I was carrying it back up the hill. And, you know, the, the goose was still warm. Uh, and I kept thinking like, wow, I'm the, I'm the only reason this happened. If I didn't decide that I needed to end this animal's life, that goose would still be, you know, alive. But like so many others have done before, Jake prepped, cooked, and ate that goose. And today, he still eats meat. Well, well you're still eating meat, right? Well, that, yeah. but that's the contradiction is it's like there are things that we do in this world that are harmful or hurtful or um, problematic that we're okay with. Even if I don't enjoy the act of death, maybe I'm still okay with buying a steak from the grocery store. Can they both exist at the same time? You know, I think they can. And I I mean, they do in my world, Mm -hmm. which is not always easy to reconcile. Yeah. Jake's sentiment here, that he can feel bad for animals and eat them at the same time, it has got to be the most relatable sentence omnivores will hear in this story. After all, everybody comes up with their own rules. Maybe you eat beef, but draw the line at veal. Maybe you try and buy local meat, but don't fret about it when you're at a restaurant. Jake wrestled with his food choices literally, chasing down and killing a goose. But we all wrangle with our choices intellectually rounding our ethical decisions up or down based on some individual set of calculations. We're all contradicting ourselves at some point or another. Vegans might be discouraged by our willingness to accept those contradictions, but it's also pushed them towards another line of argument, one that I must say I do find rather compelling. Animal agriculture is one of the leading causes of climate change. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% of all greenhouse gases can be directly traced to meat consumption, 
Some would say it's much higher, some would say a little bit lower, but 15% is a pretty well-agreed-upon number. Reducing that number will require a dramatic shift in cultural norms. Because as long as we want cheap meat on the shelves, that 15%, it's going to go up. So absent some big systemic changes to reduce the emissions of agriculture, if we're just looking at personal choices, eating less meat is the low-hanging fruit. It'll have more impact than switching to a hybrid car, recycling bottles, or biking to work. We can ignore the animal welfare stuff, assuming we choose to stay in the matrix. But climate change won't be sequestered to the slaughterhouses. We won't be able to look away. Within a few months of reaching out to Laura, my cognitive dissonance was reaching meltdown levels. In the morning, I might watch a video of sick pigs being dumped by the truckload into a mass grave, and then at lunchtime, I would heat up leftover pork lo mein. I found myself staring at my food while I ate it. I started dreading mealtimes. I decided it was time to do something that Laura had told me I should do a long time ago. How are you feeling right now? Uh, I feel... I'm, I'm apprehensive. Yeah, I would rather be driving to see virtually anything than animals getting killed right now. This is like not... <laughs> You know, it seemed like a good idea until you're on the road and you're like, well, I guess we're committed. That's coming up after a break. Last year, on a rainy weekday, Sam and I took a trip to a slaughterhouse just a few miles from the Vermont-New Hampshire border. I'd called the owner and asked if I could come see the place. And because it's a small slaughterhouse the sort of place that butchers local farmers market livestock, he said yes. There wasn't much of an agenda on my part. I wanted to know if watching an animal get slaughtered would jumpstart my moral engine, turn some switch inside me that would make vegetarianism the only obvious choice. Wait, are you on Laura's side? You're, you're, I wouldn't say you're on Laura's side. I, no, but I would say that I'm on, I'm more on Laura's side than most people are, but I'm not on Laura's side. I feel like I'm on no one side. I hate everything. On the one hand, I've always been a little jealous of people like Laura. She's incredibly high-strung, yes, but her righteousness is so unconflicted. I envy her certainty. On the other hand, I fear becoming like her. I'm already prone to long lectures, as you can hear. I don't want to become a better person if it comes at the cost of being a more annoying one. Oh, see here, here we go. This looks like it's gonna be in here. And it's like, oh, there it is, PT Farm. Yeah, it does have a cowy smell. Yeah. It's cow butt. It doesn't smell like meat. It smells like cow. Cow butt, yeah. On the outside, PT Farms is boxy and mundane looking. Like it could be a warehouse for packing peanuts or the administrative building for an accounting company. Inside, there's a small store, a carpeted office with a town clerk sort of vibe. Nothing fancy. That's where Sam and I met Pete and Tara, the P and T of PT Farms. Hey, how you doing? Good, Taylor. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Spoke with you after. Oh, that's right. Sam. Nice Sam. to meet you, Sam. They're married. Bunch of kids. Pete is a burly guy, big beard. Looks like he could probably step in and do any job in the place. Cool man. Get a lot of visitors. Yeah, we get a few. People wielding microphones a lot. No. Okay. Just check it. I should say. I was pretty shocked that he said yes to us coming. Slaughterhouses are notorious for keeping the press out. After all, even the cleanest, smallest, most humane slaughter isn't going to look pretty on camera. And as the saying goes, people don't like to see how the sausage gets made. 
But PT Farms makes a point of being transparent. Their tagline is know where your meat comes from. Yeah, man. You guys want to uh, in the windows? Do you mind if I record, Pete? No, it'll be a challenge. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, it's loud on the other side. Although we're only killing pigs, so we don't go through as much air. Just outside the office, Pete pushed open a door to reveal a huge, mostly empty warehouse. There were batting cages off to one side for when Pete and Tara's kids come to hang out. And in the center, almost like a separate building inside the building, is the facility where the processing happens. Everybody's just coming back after lunch. We stepped up to one of the huge windows that looked inside. And immediately, things got weird. So what are we looking at here? This ain't gonna work. This, you is, you, this is just pissing me off. It so, is? Well, Pete left Sam and I alone in the slaughterhouse. I had no idea what was happening. We followed Pete back into the lobby, where he quickly handed us off to Tara after a tense conversation. What's going on? You okay? Yeah, if you want us to not record and we just talk, I mean, we can do that too. It was pretty clear that he thought we had come to paint him as some sort of villain, which wasn't my intent, but maybe he's not entirely wrong. Anyway, Tara was a lot more forthcoming about what it's like to actually be in the business of providing American meat. I have to be honest in saying, when Pete and I first started out on this venture, I preferred to say we were just farmers. I might even leave this piece out, because I don't want the, huh? You do that? Why? You kill animals for a living? Yeah, I know that sounds absolutely horrendous when you say it like that. But no, I'm putting food on your table. We are what we are. I've kind of gotten over that now. Yeah, my husband and I run a slaughterhouse. Do you want to know something about it? <laughs> Tara also told us that some years back, PT Farms had had a hit of E. coli from some of their beef. They'd had to briefly shut down operations. It was costly and stressful and scary. And the coverage had a whiff of elitism, as though the same folks that were espousing the virtues of eating local couldn't face its realities. Local and Western beef can both have the same problems. They both shit E. coli, those cows, okay, or can. So... There's a lot of education. I knew that big slaughterhouses were famously secretive, that they don't want journalists poking around. But it never occurred to me that meat producers are also dealing with the cognitive dissonance of this American meat matrix, with the choice that so many of us make to shield ourselves from the process. What's strange is that so many folks, myself included, have eaten meat for years and yet still managed to pass judgment on the people who get it to the grocery store, as though we weren't half of a very important equation supply and demand. Like over here we have Haverhill Cooperative Middle School and they're doing ag in the classroom, which is fabulous. I remember when I first started over at the elementary school, Pete and I would bring a couple pigs over so the kids could take a look and pet the pigs. And, and I remember saying at one point to the kids, now why do you think I raise these pigs? And you know, the kids had a pretty good handle. I mean, sausage, bacon. And I was like, you're right, I raise them for bacon. I remember one of the teachers looking over at me and she said, you're gonna give these kids a complex. And I was like, really? Because I think the kids who don't understand where their food from are the ones that end up with a complex. Laura, or Dr. Joy, they would probably call this indoctrination. This is how carnism asserts itself, by teaching children that it's okay to kill pigs. But I agree with Tara. People who grow up on farms, people who see their parents cull a chicken or slaughter a goat, I think these folks are less likely to feel conflicted as adults because they've been given an actual choice. They've seen what happens, and they can choose to buy in, and many do, or they can choose to walk away. Eventually, we did get to see what we came for, 
We stood outside the giant window, and Tara pointed out the room where the cuts get butchered. And then we moved to another window, where a number of slaughtered pigs were hanging from heavy chains on the ceiling. I'm not even sure exactly when it happened, listening back to the tape. I remember watching, monitoring my own reaction, waiting for my stomach to turn or my throat to close up. Instead, I felt remarkably calm. Turns out I'd seen it all before, on TV, on the internet. It didn't look any different than I expected. Violent, yes, but also robotic, dispassionate. We stood there for a few minutes, saw one pig get shocked with a prod, and then hung up before having its throat slit. A worker was prepping another pig by the time we left. I think Laura wanted me to visit a slaughterhouse because she assumed I would be equally outraged. But I don't think my trip had the intended effect at all. Was it unsettling? Yeah. Was it life-changing? No. If I had any doubts leaving PT Farms, it was because I had visited a small slaughterhouse, as though it were representative of the norm. It's not. Even with all the farm-to-table stuff these past few years, about 85% of all the cows slaughtered in the U.S. come from just four companies. That's four companies slaughtering 33 million cows per year. I could handle one pig. I'm not sure how it would feel if it was scaled up. There's a part of me that can look at that and say, wow, I'm glad we're not doing it like that. Or that's, you know, those factory farms. But there's a flip side of me that also says, geez, they've got it figured out. Either way, I left PT Farms feeling less certain than I did before. Is eating meat always wrong? I don't think so. But if that's the case, when is it okay? I do think that eating meat is okay, but you have to know where it comes from. Some meat is okay and other meat is not okay. This is Tamar Haspel. She's a Washington Post columnist who writes a lot about divisive food policy stuff. Obesity, animal agriculture, GMOs, that kind of thing. She has this way of cutting through the sentiment on complicated topics, asking and often answering questions like, what really is better for the environment? What food policies improve health? And which ones are we just patting ourselves on the back for? It's always, well, there are trade-offs, there are advantages, there are disadvantages. But by the time all of these advantages and disadvantages, you know, bubble through the media and social media, they divide people into camps and one camp picks out the advantages and the other camp picks out the disadvantages and we have this black and white thing. And so our argument about meat is too often, yes, meat is great. It is, you know, low cost protein for people. Um, It's a way to turn grass, which people can't eat, into protein, which people can eat. It provides all kinds of byproducts and fertilizer etc cetera, etc cetera. and then on the other hand you have all these issues that you're you're talking about now we have animal welfare issues we have pollution issues um we have greenhouse gas issues it's 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 complicated tamar told me quote i never eat meat without thinking about animal rights and as far as i can tell she isn't messing around She farms oysters, a mollusk that even some vegans are willing to eat. She raises and butchers her own animals, rarely buys meat from the grocery store, and when she does, she examines the labels carefully. She even has a pretty weird set of criteria for picking out poultry. I know, this is going to sound silly, but I look for the chickens that aren't spherical, that have legs that really stick out, because that indicates that 
the chicken maybe has had more exercise, that it maybe hasn't grown quite so fast into that butterball shape. Pete and Tara care about their animals. But when push comes to shove, they're running a business. And if they have enough customers to hire more people, expand operations, kill the animals a little bit quicker, well, I expect they will. Tamar, on the other hand, she's all about the DIY. When she kills a pig, she's stocking her freezer. It's not profit-driven. And it's also not a philosophy that can very easily be scaled up. I think if you've ever broken down a whole animal and tried to use every part of it, I don't think you would have that idea. Have you ever done that? Oh, goodness, no. Okay. No. <laughs> I've, I've done it a lot. <laughs> and, and what you end up with is a whole lot of, okay, well, what are we going to do with the heart? Hmm. Oh, well, there's this recipe for this and that. And can we use the skin for something? Do we want to make cracklings? It's not efficient at all. It's incredibly time-consuming and draining. And But we feel strongly that we want to use every part of an animal that we kill for ourselves because every part we don't use, it means we have to take some other part from some other animal. In certain privileged circles, folks like Tamar are typically framed as the ethical meat eaters, the considerate carnists, a way to love your bacon and eat it too. And you know what? I can live with that argument. But if this is the ethical alternative, I do have to ask myself, am I willing to raise and slaughter my own animals? Will I eat the heart, carve the bones, use the skin for cracklings? No, I don't think so. Tamar has seen the meat matrix for what it is, but she wound up making a completely different choice than Laura did. The irony here is that even though they'll be pitted against one another in meat matrix culture wars, the vegans and the dedicated ethical meat eaters actually agree on what may be the most important piece of this whole puzzle, that all the rest of us aren't thinking nearly enough about whether and how to eat meat. And I was pretty surprised when Tamar went one step further. She admits it's really the Laura Slits of the world that will shift public perception. Well, if, if you'll allow me to mix a metaphor, I think it's the lunatic fringe that moves the needle. And so, you know, look at Americans in fur. And look at, at, it was like in the 80s and the 90s, the radicals would go out and they would throw fake blood on people wearing fur, including sometimes people wearing fake fur. And lots of people rolled their eyes about that. But it's those kinds of activities, it's, it's that kind of outrage that I think eventually penetrates the consciousness of uh, of the zeitgeist. We're trying to give a voice to the animals so um, because they can't speak for themselves. And There's a big caveat to this point, though. And that is, overall, vegetarianism rates in the U.S. have been more or less flat for a couple of decades. So the shift has been more granular. We eat less beef and more poultry. There are more plant-based options in store shelves. And major chains have moved away from some of the most controversial practices used by factory farms. Vegans may have indeed moved the needle, but that doesn't change the fact that according to the USDA, Americans in 2018 are on track to eat more meat than ever before, 222 pounds per person. I could say for myself, which is that Laura helped me differentiate myself from her own views, but also pull mm -hmm. me in that direction to make me think about it. And, you know, I got nothing but good things to say about that. Yeah. But really, oysters, I draw the line. <laughs> Yeah. Hey Taylor, it's Laura Slit. 
back from the south. How are you? Hope you had a good, manageable winter. Mine was in partially in California, but I just spent the last two months in Gainesville, Florida, at Jungle Friends Primate Sanctuary. I don't know. I thought maybe we could get together. The, the first thing I heard when I turned on NHPR this morning was about dog sled racing and how it can be done in the warm weather. And I'm, I left a message for Rick Ganley that I hope they do the full story because in dog sledding, which I just heard a presentation about, dogs end up being killed. I just wanted to say hi, check back in, see how you're doing, and put in a plug for the animals, of course. My life's calling. Okay, talk to you soon, I hope. Bye. Sometime after my visit to PT Farms, I made the leap. Or I made a leap, anyway. I stopped eating animals. It wasn't a lightning strike for me. My moral engine didn't suddenly turn over. Eventually, I just had to face my own truth. The choice was mine, and all in all, it's easier to give up meat than it is to start my own farm. Of course, I'm still half in the matrix. I've read about the dairy industry, too. A lot of vegans consider it worse than meat, for a number of reasons you can Google if you ever go down this road, too. Anyway, it wasn't a lightning strike, like I said. It was more like a big resigned sigh. I stopped talking about food for a while, stopped working on the story, even stopped talking to Laura. I decided to give myself a break. Which was sort of funny, because even as I continued shifting in her direction, I found that our friendly rapport started to stiffen. So so the, there's always that other side, Taylor, that never, ever, 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 never gets brought in. Why is it always the animal rights activists that feel the pain and the suffering of the animals? Hey, Taylor, it's Laura in Bartlett. Sorry we never connected. No. Um, I, I guess either you find me a little bit too intense and which I am kind of on the edge all the time because of... I think that when we first started talking, she felt heard and hopeful that I would use my position as a producer to influence our station's content. But over time, I was just another cog in the wheel. You know, human beings lost their way a long time ago, and domesticating animals is the root cause of, of all the ugliness. Why can't we talk about it? Why is it so hard? Thanks. Discarded. And let's have these debates. These are the big things debates that need to happen. Thank you. Discarded. The animals need help, and, and, and we all, it's all our obligation to do so. Thanks. You're a good guy. Discarded. The truth is, I worry about Laura. The horror, the outrage, they can be powerful motivators, but too much is not healthy. It turns you away from the world that you're trying to change, and I think you need to be able to see the matrix if you want to influence the people inside of it. And Laura, I want you to know, I am on your side. It might not always seem like it, but I am. Hey, dear Taylor, it's, it's Laura Slitton Bartlett. I lost Cecil, the black potbelly pig, the elder potbelly pig, to a really gruesome bear attack. I've had bears living around here and, and in and out of this corral since I moved here in 1996. It's never, ever, ever been a problem. So I just felt like I wanted to tell you and thank you for being who you are. End of recording. To play, press 1. To save, press 2. Saved. To the rest of you outside in listeners, I know you're out there. 
I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby with help from Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of There Is No Spoon. A special thanks to Christine and Chet, who are both wonderful and complex human beings. Apologies for exploiting you for the introduction of this story. There are lots of ways to get in touch with us to let us know how you feel about what you've just heard. We're on Twitter. I'm at Sam E B N H P R. We are at Outside In Radio. Taylor's at Taylor Quimby One. Yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't get the. I didn't get it without the number. <laughs> also, we do put out a biweekly newsletter. It is short, entertaining, full of links of interesting things to read. You can subscribe at our website outsideinradio.org. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, Mon Plaisir, Tyler Gibbons, Nocturnum, and Ikimashu Aoi. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 